This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 323rd episode, we have a bunch of news, including how Spinosaurus hunted, what baby Tyrannosaurs looked like, and we have a new Megalosauroid. It's a carnivorous episode. It is very much so. Except for our dinosaur of the day is Mantellosaurus, which is an herbivore. We had to balance it out. (laughs) I suppose. But before we get into that, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank, for the first time, Hippoceratops, thank you very much for joining. And rounding out our shoutouts are Kessler, Vikram and Karthik, Scotty, Morgan Eklov, Argentrinosaurus, Diplodocate, Robert, DC Cassandra, and Mycoraptor. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support. And if you're not already, consider joining our community. We've been having a lot of great discussions on our Discord and lots of other perks. So all you got to do is go to patreon.com slash I know Dino. And before we get into the news this week, I want to just have a quick correction break about Shunmenglong that we talked about last week. And this is courtesy of a listener from Beijing. I mentioned that the Yingliang group was a geological formation where Shunmenglong was found, but it's actually the name of a commercial enterprise. So it's like a group, as in like a multinational conglomerate (laughs) kind of group. Very different. Yes. And they sell stone, which is why they have a stone museum, which is sort of a corporate museum type thing that also includes some dinosaur fossils. So that's how that all got connected. It's a pretty interesting sounding company. Mm Mm-hmm. Jumping into the news, I'm going to kick it off with the new Spinosaurus paper, which there's been a lot of buzz about all over the interwebs. (laughs) Technically, I have two megalosauroid papers because Spinosaurids are megalosauroids. Mm. Well, the oid means it's a pretty big group. Yeah, but megalosauroids aren't that big of a group. They're kind of weird. I'll talk about that later. (laughs) This paper was written by David Hone and Thomas Holtz and published in Paleo Electronica, which is open access. And apparently Dave Hone partially picked this journal to publish it because it's open access. Oh, nice. Which is awesome. We always appreciate that. Open access is definitely the way to go if you can with your papers. Anybody publishing. Anyway, this new Spinosaurus paper was submitted in July 2020. And the only reason I point that out is because Ibrahim's article where it included that tail with the sail slash fin on the top of this tail was published in April of 2020. Oh, so they were doing their work around the same time. Yes. And this paper includes a lot of comments on that Ibrahim paper. Hmm. I assume because it's like tens of thousands or at least 10,000 words long, they had already done quite a bit of it by the time 
Ibrahim had released his paper, but it definitely was strongly colored by that paper. So a lot of it is a response to whether or not Spinosaurus hunted while swimming or if it hunted while wading in shallow water. And obviously Ibrahim's paper argued that Spinosaurus hunted while swimming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're going to be learning a lot about Spinosaurus in the coming years. This is a good meme about it or people talking about it online like oh i'll just uh, wait 10 years and then we'll know <laughs> yes there's a lot of back and forth i think if you take the average of what people think about spinosaurus it hasn't changed that much over the last five or ten years but definitely when we get a new piece of evidence it pulls towards one side or the other of the debate and so people that are a fan of one way or the other or especially non-paleontologists might latch on to some details and go a little bit to the extremes mm -hmm. with some of their ideas about Spinosaurus. This is a really good example of how science works. Yes, definitely. And things that were considered ridiculous or something just a couple of years ago are now like, well, maybe that could be what happened. Mm -hmm. So there's one quote in the Ibrahim paper, which I think is sort of the nexus of the debate. And Ibrahim said, quote, the morphology and function of its tail, along with its other adaptations for life in water, point to Spinosaurus having been an active and highly specialized aquatic predator that pursued and caught its prey in the water column, end quote. Right. That made a lot of headlines when that paper came out. And there was a piece of paleo art that was published with the paper of it sort of swimming down to the bottom of a lake or a river with its mouth wide open about to eat, I think, a sawfish. Could have been, or a, a coelacanth. It could have been, yeah. It was definitely one of those two, because those are the two that it seems like they most often highlight Spinosaurus eating. I think some of those elements have been found with Spinosaurus remains in the past. And it's that notion of pursuing prey rather than ambushing prey that seems to be the main focus of this paper. And again, whether it's either waiting, it's more like a crocodilian, sort of just totally still with his mouth open, ready to snap at something, or if it's like a predatory fish or shark or something chasing down prey. Mm -hmm. Though I'm pretty sure no matter what it did normally, if it saw something injured, you know, lying on the shore or whatever, it probably would have snapped that up. Oh, absolutely, yeah. These debates often turn into it definitely did all of this or all of that. And the answer is never that simple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like no modern animals just do one thing all the time. Because if they did, they go extinct pretty quickly when that one option wasn't available anymore. Mm -hmm. There's also a funny video somebody posted in our Discord of Spinosaurus swimming like a sailfish <laughs> and sort of like corralling fish. And it, it looks completely wrong. You just glance at it and you're like, there's no way this Spinosaurus was swimming that fast. And faster than all the fish could to the point where it can swim literally circles around them. Like it's just not streamlined enough. It's yeah, fish are very fast. Yes. They I mean they've spent hundreds of millions of years evolving to swim fast. Spinosaurus is not going to be able to keep up. But it is fun to think about. It is. It it looks fun in the animation, but once you think about it, you're like, eh, maybe not. So the authors point out that most crocodiles don't pursue fish and they ambush them. And that Spinosaurus had a lot of drag compared to its prey, even something like a large sawfish or a coelacanth, which isn't the most powerful and fast swimmer. It's just not even in the same league of aquatic adaptations at all. And that might sort of be the, the nexus of that pursuing in the water column. It gives this sort of perception that it's diving down into the water and sort of being completely submerged. That's what I think of when I think of pursuing in the water column. 
but technically it could have maybe swam or half walked, half <laughs> swam in some shallower water, and maybe I should say run. Because the authors did say, quote, if swimming to engage prey based on the drag performance and body shape, it would be limited to lunging attack in shallow waters, not pursuit predation at speed in open water, mm-hmm. end quote. So yeah, I think it's still reasonably possible, especially like you were saying, if something was injured or something to that effect, that it could have swum a little bit to catch something. Or if something was crossing the water, like how we see crocodiles attack when, um, was it antelope or... Yeah, something like that, and they're migrating. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking that exact same thing. And does it count as pursuing prey in the water column if hundreds of feet away you see some hadrosaurs starting to swim across and you sneak up underneath the water at Mm -hmm. them and then pop up underneath them and, you know, latch onto one? Right. You're technically pursuing your prey in the water column and you're swimming over to them, but it's not like that's your main strategy and it's not like you're chasing down something that spends a lot of its time in the water column. Right. At that point, though, you're being opportunistic. Yeah, exactly. Which you have to be when you're an animal. (laughs) So there are two frequently cited fish prey. There's Mawsonia, which is a coelacanth, and Oncopristus, which is basically a big sawfish, but I don't think it's technically a sawfish, at least not in the same group as modern sawfish. The only reason I named them specifically is because they're not the most streamlined and not the fastest fish. For example, coelacanths have those lobe-finned fish, and they're a little bit bulkier and just not ideal for swimming fast. And sawfish are usually a little bit wider and they tend to go more slowly near the bottom of the ocean. I think their main predation style is sort of sucking things up out of the sand and things like that. Mm. So they're not going for speed records in their like pursuit of prey. But I do think they were both much faster than Spinosaurus in the water. I was kind of hoping to be able to find a speed estimation of either of these fish, either in this paper or elsewhere, but I couldn't find anything. And I think it's because speed isn't that important to these fish. But I do think that it would be quite a bit faster than Spinosaurus. Although I could be wrong. If somebody comes up with a speed estimation, maybe it'll upend this whole paper and show us that it could swim fast enough to hunt down the prey that we know it ate. Yeah. You just, we don't know. I think the best evidence for wading into the water and then sort of putting the snout down into the water and then snapping at prey ambush style as it passes by rather than swimming in the water column and tracking things down is the position of the nostrils on Spinosaurus's head. Mm, mm-hmm. So on a typical theropod, the nostrils are right at the tip. You know, everybody knows basically T-Rex. <laughs> yep. It has the nostrils right at the front of the head, just like a horse or any other animal that we're familiar with. But on Spinosaurus, the nostrils are shifted way farther back and they're actually closer to the eyes. Hmm. Like you see on some birds, especially birds that put their beaks into the water <laughs> to snatch at fish, for example. You know, it's interesting. Decades ago, scientists, well, more than decades ago, but scientists thought that sauropods dwelled in the water and Mm -hmm. had their nostrils on the top of their head. And now we're talking about this carnivorous dinosaur with the nostrils at the top of the head. Yeah, that's really funny, isn't it? But it's a totally different rationale than the sauropods. It's not like because it was too bulky, it needed to be in the water to support its weight. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's more just an opportunity to eat something. One additional element of those nostrils that supports it waiting, because another time that your nostrils might move is if you were going to be submerged in water. 
So a lot of animals like you think of whales or dolphins, they have that blow hole on the top of their head. It's obviously useful to have the nostrils up there rather than where their predecessors had them. But on Spinosaurus, the nostrils aren't shifted higher on the head like a blowhole. They're just shifted back on the head towards the eyes. So they don't, they're not actually at the top of the snout. They're just sort of farther back. So that would make you think that they're sticking their nose down into the water rather than sticking their head up out of the water. Hmm. Especially because if you look at the position of where their eyes are relative to their nostrils, they couldn't really keep their eyes underwater while breathing, which is a useful thing to do if you're spending your time underwater. Mm -hmm. They would have, it's more like how we look underwater where you have to stick your whole face up out of the water. That's what it looks like. It looks really awkward if it was going to spend a lot of its time underwater. Of course, that doesn't mean that it didn't spend some time like that. I think the other obvious aquatic potentially adaptation of Spinosaurus is its skull generally. It's long and skinny. It's like the first thing you notice when you look at the Spinosaurus, maybe after the sail. Mm-hmm. It looks a lot like a crocodile, but it's actually longer and skinnier than a crocodile head. It's a little bit more like a gharial than it is like a crocodile. But the authors do point out that it's not as long and skinny as a gharial, so it doesn't look like it's purely f- specialized for fish. And we know that it wasn't because we've found things like pterosaur bones, right? In, right? Not in Spinosaurus, but in Spinosaurids. Yes. Iguanodonts too, I think. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> so there were some other elements. I think they came up with like A through X <laughs> type number of reasons why it was more likely to be wading than swimming. That's a lot of reasons. Yes, there were a lot. Some of them were sort of inconclusive and could be changed as more evidence is forward. But wading does seem to be a more probable answer. One of the interesting things they did was they mathematically mapped a lot of features of the skull and compared Spinosaurus skull to other theropods, to known aquatic animals today versus known terrestrial animals today. So basically things like how wide the head is versus how long it is. And on four out of six of the features, Spinosaurus was in between known aquatic and terrestrial groups. Right in the middle? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Two of them, it was kind of off to either side, but yeah, it was in between on like most of them, which is pretty interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And to me, it also says that it was probably sort of an interesting animal that was doing all of the above. Tells me that the debate is far from over. Definitely. Another really cool thing in the paper, they talked about wave drag in a way that I hadn't heard before. Hmm. Have you ever heard of wave drag? No. So the only place I had ever heard that term before is in engineering. It's in supersonic jets. When you go through a sonic boom, mm-hmm. you pass Mach 1 into supersonic speed, you get this wave drag, the wave of that supersonic boom, basically. Hmm. And so you have to design the plane wings. You have to sweep them farther back. If you Like the SR-71 Blackbird or the one they use on that shield show. Love that plane. Anyway, <laughs> you have to avoid wave drag. It creates a lot of friction. But... The way they're using wave drag in this paper, I believe, is analogous to wave-making resistance, as I had known it. That's the concept that creating a wave is a way to make additional drag, or, you know, accidentally, you usually try to avoid it when you're either swimming or when you're propelling a boat, more typically, because 
when you're engineering the thing, you focus on this resistance and try to reduce it. One way to reduce it, for example, is boats. You know how they have that big bulbous thing under the water on the front now? Mm -hmm. That's a way to make less of a wave behind the boat and it reduces the wave making resistance of the boat. So oh. it gets better fuel efficiency when it's going. Hmm. And you can also do things like change the shape of the hull. You can, if you want to get really fancy, make it a hydrofoil. Oh. <laughs> so it rises up out of the water and yeah, those are really so cool. So it's a way to streamline. Exactly. Yeah. So animals in general want to reduce their wave making so that they get less friction when they're swimming through the water. One way that they do that is they just try to stay underwater because you don't make a wave when you're underwater. But because of its long sail, they calculated that Spinosaurus would need to be about six meters or 20 feet deep <laughs> to avoid wave drag. And that's with its arms and legs retracted. Okay. And if its eyes can't really go underwater that well. Then. Yeah, and there's even questions of how well it could stay underwater given the pneumaticity in some of its bones. We mm -hmm. talked about a paper that had that in there and it, it included a thing about whether it would tip over because of the high center of mass when it was swimming along the surface. But even if it could swim underwater effectively and it could hold its breath so the eyes to nostrils ratio wasn't great, that really tall profile that it has and its rough body texture and the fact that its arms and legs stick down out of its body and not out to the sides like the fins on basically every aquatic animal creates some pretty big problems. And since fluid mechanics is very much my wheelhouse, it's actually even worse than the six meters or 20 feet deep because if it was swimming near the seafloor or riverbed, it would also encounter extra drag. Hmm. Do you remember in 2008 when they made the Olympics pool deeper in Beijing? No. And all these world records were set. Hmm. It's because when you're swimming and your arms are going through the water, if your arm is near the bottom of the pool, you actually encounter resistance, friction from the water near the edge. Oh. But if you make the pool deeper, you don't have that same resistance. I don't remember the pools, but I remember Michael Phelps. Setting world records. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in order to avoid this extra drag from being near the bottom of the water column, you need to stay away from it a little bit. And so it would need to be even deeper water, especially if your body isn't streamlined, it causes more problems. So it's got a big, tall, bumpy body, which just isn't good for swimming underwater. It's basically <laughs> the summary of a Spinosaurus. But it also sounds like its body is not great for walking on land. No, it's not ideal for walking on land. <laughs> what was it doing? <laughs> so that's, why, that's basically why the authors are saying it was ideal for standing still, waiting in water, waiting to grab something. Huh. And it was good enough on land that it could probably hunt things, especially in an opportunistic kind of way. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it's more likely to spend time being opportunistic on the land than opportunistic completely submerged in the water, I would say. So in that way, it could have been very crocodilian, just staying still for hours and hours yes. most of the day. Yeah, I think the crocodile analogy is really good, except for it's sort of an inverse crocodile because crocodiles are 99% submerged mm -hmm. or maybe even 100% submerged waiting for fish to pass by, whereas Spinosaurus is the opposite. It's like 99% out of the water with just its mouth and maybe its feet in the water. Right. So in that way, they make a comparison to like storks and herons. There are lots of birds that do that. They sort of stand in the water and then they stick their mouth down to grab out fish. I think every heron I've seen has not been completely still. Yeah. Maybe they're quicker. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and some of the animals like pelicans are even another level where they dive down and catch things. But yeah, you learn that from Finding Nemo. 
I don't remember that. No. <laughs> I think they, they used a pelican to move the fish out of the water to some oh, other body of water. A friendly pelican. Kind of. It didn't eat them at least. Yeah. That's good. There's also a really cool comparison in the paper to the bones in the tail. And they're making a lot of arguments for why the tail wouldn't have been good for swimming. But to me, then you want to propose an alternative hypothesis. What was that tail fin for, if not for swimming? And the bones in the tail fin, they point out, look a lot like Hydrosaurus. So at first seeing Hydrosaurus, I was like, oh, that's water dinosaur, right? And it's got to be some kind of dinosaur. But it's not a dinosaur. It's, <laughs> it's the group that's known as the sailfin lizards. And they're similar to the basilisk, also known as the Jesus Christ lizard. They're the ones that walk on water. They run really fast. Oh, yeah. I like those videos. They're so cool, especially in slow-mo. It's just so satisfying seeing their feet like paddles in the water. It's so, apparently, they can run like 10 or 20 meters or 30 to 60 feet across water when they're young. When they get older, they're too heavy. They can only do a few feet. But it's basically an escape mechanism for them when something's coming at them. They run across some water and then the thing hunting them is like, forget it. (laughs) I can't run across the water. I guess I'm giving up. (laughs) So anyway, these sailfin lizards just have the same sort of longer with a relatively small diameter centrum to their vertebrae. And then that really long, skinny neural spine coming off the top, like on the Spinosaurus tail. And then the obvious question is, why does Hydrosaurus as a group, have these types of vertebrae. And it doesn't seem like it's for tail propulsion or hunting fish in general. It's more just a display structure. I tried to find out if it could raise or lower its tail. I don't think it can. You wouldn't think it could because it's like fused onto the vertebrae, basically. I couldn't see any that had them lowered, but people don't take pictures of animals doing boring stuff. So every picture you're going to see of something with a sail, it's always with the sail raised, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not positive that it couldn't lower it. Possibly even a bigger nail in the coffin of the tail being used for really fast propulsion is that it looks like the tail lacks the musculature that would be required for really powerful propulsion. Easy comparison to make is with crocodiles. So crocodilians have these skeletons. There's a good discussion about this on our Discord too, where basically the vertebrae are missing a lot of pieces you would expect to see there because the muscles were so big that they're sort of invading the space where the vertebrae wants to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's the, and they have these huge muscle attachment points. And it just you can look at the bone and see like there's a lot of muscle around this tail. And that just isn't there with the Spinosaurus tail. It doesn't look like it was a big muscly tail. And it's also lacking some of the stiffness that you'd want to see for the type of propulsion that's based mostly localized in the tail. But even with all that, they do acknowledge that Spinosaurus was probably a better swimmer than typical theropods, which is basically what the Ibrahim paper said, that they were a better swimmer than typical theropods, but a worse swimmer than crocodilians, which is a little weird that they ended with the conclusion of, so it's a pursuit predator because crocodiles aren't pursuit predators, at least in the water column. Mm. So in the end, they're basically proposing that the tail is another display structure, just like the back sail, possibly used for thermoregulation, maybe a minor benefit with swimming, or it could be multiple of these or these plus other little things. I was hoping to see something weirder in there. Do you remember the the theory that Spinosaurus used its sail like some kind of bird using its wings oh. over the water and then like looking down, it was using it to shade the water so it could see through it better. 
<laughs> I was kind of hoping they would say that about the tail, like it curl its tail around and reduce the glare on the water or something crazy that I hadn't thought of. But they stuck to the more reasonable stuff. Yeah. I was also happy to see they pointed out that different populations of Spinosaurus likely hunted different prey, just like how most Nile crocodiles focus on fish, but there are some groups that focus on terrestrial animals. And by the way, Nile crocodiles are all over Africa, not just in the Nile. They should probably be called the African crocodile, but I think we probably found them in the Nile first. And so that's where the name comes from. They got famous in the Nile. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Spinosaurus aegypticus, famous in Egypt. But now mostly known from Morocco. Yes. Hopefully we don't find out there's a difference between Spinosaurus aegypticus Spinosaurus moroccanus when becomes the holotype. And anyway, I digress. There's also the possibility that young Spinosaurus might have been different too, eating something different or maybe swimming more. Who knows what? We don't have really any fossils to go on. It's just like young T Rex. Exactly. I also feel the compulsion to point out that swimming versus waiting is probably a bit of a false dichotomy, just like the authors point out that it likely waited and hunted and scavenged some terrestrial prey. It could have occasionally pursued a slower animal in the water, like you were saying, with if there was a theropod or nithopod or something trying to swim that doesn't have any aquatic adaptations, it could sneak up on them potentially. Kind of an off-topic thing, because we've talked about it, Dinosaurs is on Disney Plus now, so of course Garrett and I started binging, and there's an episode about hurling day, and <laughs> Ethel, the grandma, is supposed to get hurled into a tar pit started by somebody named La Brea. And, and then Robbie, the grandson, starts talking because he doesn't feel that it's right. And they start talking about his grandfather. I don't know if the grandfather character has a name, but the grandfather sounded a lot like a Spinosaurus because they talked about how he was so good at catching fish. Yeah, they literally said he could just snatch a fish out of the water and named a whole bunch of different types of fish. Didn't matter what it is. He could just reach down and snatch one out. And that's basically exactly how these authors are describing Spinosaurus hunting. Just reaching and snatching out a fish with his mouth. Yep. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's ahead of its time, that dinosaurs. Yeah. Although... Now that we know more about dinosaurs, as we rewatch it, we're looking at the puppets and like, oh, that's anatomically incorrect. But yeah, like, what is that thing supposed to be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are cavemen. There's a lot of typical erroneous tropes in right. the show. They eat mastodons and things like that. But still, it's just as enjoyable as when I've watched it in the past. And of course, I'm impressed by the puppets. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs, 
The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th, but they are filling up. So be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, world-class language learning for the world's best moms. It's almost Mother's Day after all. We're going to continue our story from last time about our trip to the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. Yeah, we definitely recommend the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. They have a really cool dinosaur museum featuring all the highlights like Deinonychus, T-Rex, Triceratops. So we had a really great time. And then we decided to take the train back and we had some more aha moments with our language learning journey. Yeah, we had to read some maps to navigate home. And of course, a lot of the things are translated into English, but not everything is translated. So it helps a lot if you know some of the local language. It's also very nice to be able to understand announcements when you're on public transportation. Yes, because things can change sometimes. And as a bonus, we were on the train at the time when everyone was coming home from work, so I got to practice even more by listening in on conversations. Not that I was trying, but we were elbow to elbow with people, so it was hard not to hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There wasn't anything too juicy, mostly people talking about what they're going to have for dinner. But a lot of the early phrases I learned in Chinese had to do with food, so I felt pretty good about what I could understand. And Rosetta Stone can help you have your own proud moments. Yes, and the lessons are short, so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And for a limited time, you can get all of Rosetta Stone's 25 language courses for just $179, which is a huge discount off of the usual $399. And you can do that at rosettastone.com slash dino. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash D-I-N-O. Up next, we've got a new dinosaur, new megalosauroid. Not a spinosaur. This one's more of a typical megalosauroid. (laughs) It was published in Scientific Reports, another open access journal. Nice. And written by Hui Dai and others. And the new dinosaur is named Yunyangosaurus. Yunyangosaurus was actually announced in a poster at SVP in 2019 in Australia. Good memory. I read that. Oh. I did not remember it. I don't have any notes about it at SVP. (laughs) But since it was in a poster, it's easy to overlook some Mm -hmm. of them because there are so many of them. We try to see all the posters, but then you get excited talking to some of the authors and then time runs out. Yes, that definitely happens. And some of them are really catchy and draw you away from other nearby posters. But Yunyangosaurus is a tetanurin dinosaur, also known as a stiff-tailed theropod. It's only slightly more specific than theropods because most theropods are tetanurins. <laughs> makes it sound like we know exactly what this tale is all about. <laughs> it does. Unlike Spinosaurus. It's true. It does. Although Spinosaurus is a tetanurin. Okay. Well. (laughs) Like all, you know, group names that's named after some individual that had a characteristic and then half the time like Ornithischians, they're not even the ones that evolved into birds, even though it has bird in the name. But in this case, Unyangosaurus, the most we can say is it's a tetanurin or maybe you could say it's a possible megalosauroid dinosaur. So obviously we don't have a ton of this individual. And quick reminder, megalosauroids are close relatives to allosauroids. Sometimes they're like sister taxa, depending on how the phylogeny works out. Sometimes megalosauroids are kind of a paraphyletic group that includes some allosauroids. If you're talking about the old school megalosauroid group, that wastebasket taxon comes up in a lot of your dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. But this megalosauroid, Unyangosaurus puanensis, 
is named after Yunyang, which is the county where it was found, Plosaurus. So it's the Yunyang County dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And then Puanensis is after Puan, which is the town where it was found. So it's a place name, Saurus, place name Ensis, yep. as is common in China. Easy to find. Yeah, certainly. It's a, a good record of where the first of the species was found. They didn't find much of Yunyangasaurus, about 20 bones, very roughly, basically all vertebrae and ribs. It was disarticulated, but it was in a pretty small area of about five square meters or 50 square feet. So they figure it's all the same individual because it's close. It's about the same size. There's not a lot else around there. So sure. They found it in Chongqing in central China, or maybe it's southwest China. If you look at a picture of China, it's like in the center, but there's so little in Western China mm. that the term Western China applies to basically the middle of China. <laughs> sort of like the Midwest in the US, I, was I guess. I just thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like historically, everything was shifted to the East. So the West becomes weirdly central. Unless you talk to a Midwesterner, they have different opinions. Right, Garrett? Yeah. Well, I don't know what I think. Oh. About it. Okay. I think of Midwest as like northern U.S., but that's because I'm from the northern part of the Midwest. Yeah. But Yunyangasaurus was from Chongqing and specifically in the Xintiangou Formation. And that's under the Shashimiao Formation, which is much more famous. Mm -hmm. I think we were just talking about that a week or two ago. Shashimiao has tons of dinosaurs, whereas Xintiangou has much less, much fewer dinosaurs. Since it's lower, Xintiangguo is from the middle Jurassic, whereas Shashimiao is, I think, the late Jurassic or maybe middle late Jurassic. All this means that Yunyangosaurus is approximately 164 to 174 million years old. That's the entire range of the middle Jurassic. The middle Jurassic as a term is a pretty small range. Compared that is, to, yeah. Like the late Cretaceous, which is like 40 million years. Yunyangasaurus is possibly as young as 160 million years old based on some uranium lead dating that was done a little while back. But the authors of this paper don't trust that uranium lead dating. So they think that it's more in the 164 to 174 million year old time frame, which is a pretty cool time. We don't have much from that time period in the US. So it's nice that other parts of the world have that spot and we can fill in some of our knowledge about dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. The authors called out a few known dinosaurs from the Shashimiao, which I think is kind of fun to go through. Just think about what the general setting of Yunyangasaurus might have been like, even though, again, this is a little bit before the Shashimiao. They talk about the Stegosaur Chungkingosaurus, which is a famously small Stegosaur. It's only about four or five meters or 13 to 17 feet long. <laughs> a little cutie. Maybe uh, That's still pretty big. <laughs> Yeah, but since they're long, it's like only about as tall as a person. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they have like their low browsers, so their head is almost like dog height or okay. something. Yeah. Big dog, but, you know, <laughs> I think it looks cute, at least in the little depictions of it. Mm -hmm. There's also the sauropod mementosaurus, the original long neck. I love that one. <laughs> Just the longest of long necks. Yeah, they're fantastic. I don't know about original, but. I mean, it's got the longest neck. Yeah. So if anything gets the moniker long neck, it should be mementosaurids. And then there's another theropod that they call out. There's a lot of theropods and a lot of sauropods and even other thyreophorans in the area. But the theropod they mention is Yangchuanosaurus, which is about 10 meters or 30 feet long. And it's a sort of typical looking small armed average head shaped theropod. 
There's actually one mounted in the Delaware Museum of Natural History, which is currently undergoing renovations and rebranding. Hmm. So it's going to be reopened in 2022. But at that point, it'll be called the Delaware Museum of Nature and Science. Cool. Yeah, I was really surprised when I looked up Yangchuanosaurus. And found and, it in Delaware. Yeah, the Wikipedia picture is like, from Delaware. What? Okay. <laughs> it's a really well-known, like, it, we have a lot of the bones, mm -hmm. so it's something worth mounting. And I, I like that they do that because it's, you get to learn about dinosaurs from other parts of the world. It's, it's cool. Yeah. And if you're going to mount something, you might as well mount something that we have a good idea of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So compared to Yangchuanosaurus, which was about 30 feet long, Yunyangosaurus was a lot shorter. It was estimated to be about 15 feet or 4.7 meters long. And that's based on its vertebrae. So not the ideal bones to use when you're comparing animals. You usually want to use a femur or at least a series of articulated vertebrae or something. But it's the best they had. And then they compared it to Synraptor, which is a relatively close, similar area age theropod. However, Yunyangosaurus is probably a subadult based on its unfused vertebrae, so it might not have been fully grown, but they think it was maybe nearly fully grown. And even if it did get a little bit bigger, it still would have been pretty small for a mid-Jurassic tetanurin in China. Although there are some that are around that size, like Gassosaurus. Gassosaurus is one of the funny ones because in Chinese, I think it's Qilong, mm. and there's this cool, the way you write gas or air in Chinese is kind of a pretty character, but gasosaurus <laughs> in English sounds terrible. So it's one of those that sounds cool in one language is just terrible in the other, I think. Just makes you think of different things. Yes. <laughs> the bumps and holes in the vertebrae of Yunyangosaurus are pretty unique, and in general, it's a little bit less pneumatic or less hollow than other tetanurans. And in that way, you could say that it's more like a basal dinosaur or a basal archosaur, pick whatever group, because dinosaurs got more pneumatic in some groups as they got more derived, like birds, for example. But unfortunately, since we didn't get that much of the bones, we can't really tell exactly where it is. Like I said, it's like a tetanurin, probably a megalosauroid. If you do put it into a phylogenetic analysis and run it through the computer model and see where it comes out, it comes out of Megalosauridae in this mess of just a whole bunch of individuals not grouped anymore, specifically the Megalosaurids. So that doesn't really help us much. And one last fun detail is the specimen is CLGPR V00002. Oh, that is a fun detail. <laughs> well, I like it because it must be a new museum because it's literally number two in the collection. Oh, good point. Unless that V at the beginning means something, I think it might just be vertebrate. Mm. But yeah, it's a, all those zeros with a two at the end, it's definitely one of their first fossils. And that long string of letters stands for the Chongqing Laboratory of Geoheritage Protection and Research. So maybe it'll get bigger once they find more dinosaurs. Yeah, that'd be good. So I've got one more paper to share. This one is about a baby tyrannosaurid, or actually several baby tyrannosaurids around North America. It was published in the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences, which unfortunately is not open access. We were on a roll. I know, yeah. So sometimes I like to not talk as much about the non-open access papers because I like to highlight open access, but this paper is amazing, so. I don't think there's any papers you really don't want to cover, to Th be fair. That's true, yeah. <laughs> but if everything else is equal, it's sort of my tiebreaker. Mm. And I should say it was written by Gregory Funston and others. And thanks to Elias Warshaw 
for a discussion about this paper that we had on Discord, which was fun. So it should be a little bit more specific about what I mean when I say baby tyrannosaur. I'm talking about tyrannosaurids, which in this case doesn't include any tyrannosaurus. It's got a Displetosaurus and Albertosaurus, really two Albertosaurus individuals. But those are really close sister taxa to Tyrannosaurus, and they have all those Tyrannosaurid features like a big old skull and the huge D-shaped teeth for crushing bone and all that kind of stuff that you think of when you think of a T-Rex applies to these other Tyrannosaurids as well. And with these Tyrannosaurids, they all came from Alberta and Montana. They mentioned South Dakota in one part of the paper, but I don't know why. I couldn't. They talked about three specimens and they were all from, two were from Alberta and one was from Montana. So I don't know why South Dakota, maybe just because there are Tyrannosaurids there. I'm not sure. And all the bones too are from the Campanian to Maastrichtian, which means they're within the last 18 million years of the Mesozoic, probably closer, but that's just the general sort of time frame. So I'm just going to go through the three bones in a little bit of detail because I think they're all great and they're worth sort of diving into a little bit each. The first one and the best bone is MOR268, so it's at the Museum of the Rockies. It's a nearly complete embryonic jawbone from a Displetosaurus. Oh. Yeah, it's super cool. It includes about eight teeth, and they say it's in the earliest stages of tooth development. It's original teeth. Exactly, yeah. The teeth are just these little one to two millimeter points sticking up out of the jaw. Hmm. <laughs> There's not a lot of root in the jaw either. Not a lot of tooth root that you can see in the jaw when they do a CT scan, that is. And the whole jaw would have been about 55 millimeters long if it was complete, or only about two inches. Hmm. And they didn't quite have the whole thing, so I think it was closer to like 30 or 40 millimeters in like little tiny jaw. If you think about how huge, like a five foot long T-Rex skull, and this thing is mm -hmm. like two inches of jaw. It's because they all got to start in small eggs. They do, yes. It's by far the smallest tyrannosauroid dentary in their data set. And I think they would have included any other small ones known to science if there were any. So yes, very, very small. The scale comparison to adult specimens are just hilarious because since the entire jaw is only about two inches long, it's much smaller than even the smallest tooth <laughs> on an adult tyrannosaurid. It's like, oh, my, the, the scale comparison is funny. It almost looks like a scale bar itself. Mm -hmm. It's just like a little black line <laughs> on the drawing. It's so great. It's a Displetosaurus, so you might have guessed it's from the Two Medicine Formation in Montana. That's where a fair number of our Displetosaurus finds come from. And it has what they call the distinctive tyrannosaurine chin. What is that? It's got sort of like this angle to it that you see on Tyrannosaurus. If you look at the T-Rex, it sort of like angles out on the top of the premaxilla on the jaw and then back. It's just sort of like a, a striking obtuse angle that you get at the end of the dentary that you see in T-Rex and you don't see in all the other Tyrannosaurs. So it's got the tyrannosaurine chin. At that young age, not even hatched yet, it already had that chin. And it also had the characteristic groove in the dentary running along the length of the jawbone hmm. that you see in Tyrannosaurus. So it, it had some really obvious Displetosaurus characteristics even at this young age. I really appreciate it. They also tried to scale all of these finds using whatever bones they had. And so on their best estimate, if the jaw was about 55 millimeters long, they think the femur would have been about 85 millimeters long, which is just a little over three inches. <laughs> so a tiny little femur. 
And then that would mean that the entire unhatched Despletosaurus would be about 70 centimeters long, or just a little over two feet. That's still a decent size. It is. It might be a little bit misleading because since they have that long tail, mm, you know, right. the, the bulk of the dinosaur is going to be really small, you yeah. know, like a basically an average sized bird or something now. And definitely like Compsonathus or smaller sort of scale. So it's, they weren't always the king of their ecosystem. They started small having to eat bugs or <laughs> find small prey, just like every other carnivore. Mm -hmm. Unless there was some parental coolness going on that we don't know about yet. So that, I think, is the best find. But there are a couple other cool finds, too. So there was a toe claw from Alberta, or also known as an ungule. It's UALVP59599. I like using specimen numbers with these really important finds, because that way you can track them down if you're interested. This one's probably an Albertosaurus, which is pretty cool that they can tell from just a single toe claw. Yeah, <laughs> really distinctive toe claw. Yeah, exactly. And maybe I, I was trying to figure out what to call it because it's, it's sort of a claw, but, you know, it's a big bone. So it's really, you could think of it as like the end of the toe bone in a way, mm -hmm. analogous to ours, I guess. They called it remarkably large, and it's about 10 millimeters long or under half an inch. Yeah, for just a piece of the toe. Yeah, I, I thought it was funny that they said remarkably long when it's only 10 millimeters. But for, like you said, just a piece of a toe and for an embryonic remain, that is unusually large, I guess. They think it was an embryonic remain because the surface is highly porous, or you could say it was spongy. It's got that bone that just doesn't look like it's fully hardened, just like babies have, baby humans have. And it's by far, again, the smallest known tyrannosauroid bone of its type in the data set. And they did the same fun comparison to figure out the size estimate of the full-sized Albertosaurus that this ungule came from. They estimated the femur was about 140 millimeters or about five inches long. So what is that, like 66% bigger than the Displetosaurus? Hmm. And the entire Albertosaurus would have been about 122 centimeters long or about four feet so twice as long. Yeah, almost. So it's quite a bit bigger than that Displetosaurus. But the adult Displetosaurus and Albertosaurus were really close in maximum size. So my best guess would be that this Albertosaurus was just further along in its development. They were less certain that this one was an embryonic remain than the Displetosaurus. So maybe it had just hatched. But with that spongy bone and some of the other details of it, it looks like it was probably still unhatched but maybe just like a few days out from hatching, whereas maybe the Displetosaurus was weeks away from hatching or something. The last bone that they talked about isn't really a bone, it's a tooth. It's a perinatal premaxillary tooth from Alberta. It's called TMP 1996-1511. So you can tell us at the Royal Tyrrell Museum. Is that the date they found it? November 15th, 1996? I think it was found in 1996 and then... The 15 is probably like the site, like the 15th site mm -hmm. of the year. And then 11 is the individual tooth number. Okay. I think that's how they broke that down. <laughs> yeah, it is nice when they have the year in it, though, because it makes it easier to track down. The most important things about it is it has that characteristic D shape that we talked about with Tyrannosaurus. Based on the formation it's from and the age and the fact that it's got that D shape, which is clearly Tyrannosauroidy. It's probably from an Albertosaurus. 
and really cool, it already had serrations which are similar to an adult T-Rex. Wow. So its teeth in general are a lot like an adult T-Rex. It's got similar serrations, it's got the similar D-shape, and it might not have even hatched yet. Because perinatal, again, means like within a couple weeks of hatching on either end. The authors say that this is especially important because in the past, some researchers have said that these young tyrannosaurs might not have had serrations on their teeth, but this is pretty good evidence that it looks like they did. Specifically, there's a dinosaur called Oblicidon. I'm not exactly sure on that one because it's considered a nomen dubium, so people never talk about it. It was named by Lady in 1868 based largely on some premaxillary teeth without serrations. And so he made the argument it doesn't have serrations and other dinosaurs from this area have serrations when they have this shape, so it must be a new species. But then other people said, no, it's probably just a Displetosaurus that's really young and the young Displetosaurus didn't have serrations because we know that some other dinosaurs, when their diet shifted, their teeth might have changed and therefore, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that a young Tyrannosaur might not have had serrations. But with this new find, that means that maybe this Obsilodon might not have been a Displetosaurus, might have been a different genus than we've seen before. But the name could still be dubious because the serrations could be missing for another reason. They could have worn off over time, either while it was alive or during fossilization before the researchers found them. And in general, it's just kind of hard to name a species off of teeth like Troodon. I should also point out, Gorgosaurus is also known to have serrations on young premaxillary teeth, so this isn't a brand new thing to science. And it might also indicate that Tyrannosaurus didn't have that weird null generation set of teeth like some other dinosaurs where they grew and shed some teeth that were totally different than the adults when they were young. Speaking more generally about the finds, we can say some cool things about where Tyrannosaurs seem to nest. So all of the finds were in large mudstone formations, which are unusual for the areas. And the fossils are similarly unusual. They include troodontid embryos and eggshells, which are usually pretty hard to find, but don't have any remains from Champsosaurus, crocodilians, fish, or turtles, which are otherwise common in the formations. Hmm. So they think it's an actual difference in the animals that were in the area and not just preservation, mostly because there are still lots of hadrosaurid bones. Because <laughs> hadrosaurid bones are just everywhere all the time, I guess. And so if hadrosaurids were there, it's probably not a completely different ecosystem, but it is an area where different animals were congregating. In the two medicine formation, they found the tyrannosaur near Myasaura nesting sites. Uh-oh. So apparently they nested sort of nearby each other, which is awesome and mm -hmm. fascinating to think about the implications of that. But unfortunately, they haven't been able to find any Tyrannosaurid eggshell in these areas, which is a really big mystery because based on the ancestry of Tyrannosaurids and similar dinosaurs, we expect Tyrannosaurs to have really big and really thick hard-shelled eggs. Mm-hmm which should have preserved, especially because in the two medicine formation, right next to that Displetosaurus jaw, we found some Myasaura egg. <laughs> so why next to this jaw, which we think was inside a Tyrannosaur egg, can we find Myasaura egg, but we can't find Tyrannosaur egg? It's really weird. The simplest explanation is probably that it laid soft-shelled eggs, but again, that would be weird based on its ancestry. So we just don't know. It's, it's a huge mystery. Nobody knows what a tyrannosaurid 
eggshell looked like and why they seem to be missing in all these areas. Yet. Yeah. Hopefully, they're saying in the paper too, they're hopeful that if they dig in more of these areas, they might be able to find some Tyrannosaurid eggs soon. In other news, there's a quick update about the Mary Ann statue. Nice. So Denise Dutton, who has been designing it, is working on it. They've raised enough money to start actual work on it. Oh, cool. I think it's the last time they raised like 70% or something. Yeah, something like that. I think they still might need more money to complete it, but now she's making a maquette, and then she'll start on the actual statue. Cool. Yeah, and the plans to unveil the statue May 21st, 2022, which is the anniversary of Mary's birth. Also known as her birthday. But I guess anniversary because she is no longer around. I guess. Seems like it's still a birthday, even posthumously. That's true. Just different ways to phrase it. (laughs) Sounds more professional, (laughs) I guess. Garrett, have you ever played or heard of Stardew Valley? I've heard of it. Oh, really? I hadn't heard of it until I saw this article. What do you know about it? That it's a game. (laughs) I, (laughs) I, I feel like it might be sort of like Harvest Moon or something. Where it's sort of a role play, like overhead role playing game where you're like collecting things in like a town. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they describe it is this open ended country life role playing game. You inherit your grandfather's old farm plot and then you have some coins and some hand me down tools to start. And I bring this up because apparently you can find a lot of dinosaur eggs in the game and you can hatch them into dinosaurs and then have them as your pets or sell them for gold. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure what types of dinosaurs there are. In the picture, I only saw what looked like a stegosaurus. It's really pixelated. I think that's the type of art. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. yeah it's like 8-bit style. Mm-hmm. It was a cute stegosaurus. Nice. I mean, that is how it works with those tyrannosaurid eggs. If they if they could just find an egg, they could hatch it and we could have a tyrannosaurus. Oh, that's how it works. No. <laughs> that's not. <laughs> that's what I thought. Well, that's how it works in games. Yeah. <laughs> I've also read about some spoilers for Camp Cretaceous, Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. Oh, no. I don't want to know. Oh, you don't want to know? No. Do you want to cover your ears and I'll tell our listeners who do want to know? Not really. (laughs) We're about halfway through season two so far. Have you read spoilers that just apply to the first half that we've already watched? No. Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should save this for another episode then. (laughs) Okay, you want to save it? Yeah. It's hinting at a new dinosaur, but that's all I'll say. That was going to segue nicely into my last bit of news, but I guess we'll just jump into it. (laughs) So for Jurassic World Dominion, Colin Trevorrow has said that there won't be, quote, people riding dinosaurs with shotguns, which I didn't realize (laughs) there was a discussion taking place around that. Yeah, I didn't know that was one of the options on the table. Yeah. He said it's about expanding the story to have humans coexist with dinosaurs and, quote, it means there are animals in the wild and there are animals in zoos and we have some domesticated pets and we have this very complicated relationship and they're being hunted as well. This was on comicbook.com. Sounds a lot like humans' relationship with other mammals right now. Mm -hmm. Some are in zoos, some are in the wild, some are domesticated pets. Yep. And exactly the kind of thing I was hoping for in the new movie. You know what? In Jurassic World Dominion, I bet if you found a dinosaur egg, you could hatch it and turn it into your pet. Uh, maybe. 
You could definitely have it be alive. I don't know how good of a pet it would be. Okay, well, you could sell it for gold. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> sell it for gold. <laughs> that is the standard monetary unit. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them on a dig this summer and help advance our scientific understanding of the ancient world. This is a 16-day immersive paleontology experience in Northwest Colorado. The fossilized bones that are being excavated are public, and they'll be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. And the bone bed is really cool. It's atypical for the Morrison Formation. And the current thinking is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus acting as a log jam, and then other carcasses are piling up behind it. So you imagine a river flowing until a big old Brachiosaurus blocks the whole thing, and a bunch of littler dinosaurs are piling up. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. There have been two digs scheduled. There's May 27th to June 11th and July 1st to July 16th. Also, in conjunction with the dig, there are two immersive lab techniques programs available. College credit is available for both programs for those interested, and you can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details and register online. Again, that's cncc edu for Colorado Northwestern Community College slash D-I-N-O-D-I-G. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs like Saturnalia, a small long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos. Yes, that Thanos, named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. Plus some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive. There's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, sauge, or cheers. Join now at rosettastone.com slash dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Mantellosaurus, which was a request from Morgan via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It's a good one. Yeah. It's got a lot of history. So it's an iguanodontian that lived in the early Cretaceous and what is now Western Europe. It's been found in Belgium, England, Spain, and Germany. And Mantellosaurus, it looks like an iguanodon. Originally, it was thought to be an iguanodon. And if you saw it, you might think it was an iguanodon. So you're going to do the smells like an iguanodon, <laughs> sounds like an iguanodon. Must be a duck. <laughs> duck bill. <laughs> But the difference is Mantellosaurus is more lightly built than Iguanodon, and it's also more closely related to Aranosaurus. So it's probably more derived than Iguanodon. 
Mentelosaurus was probably semi-quadrupedal, and it walked on all fours when standing still or moving slowly. Like a kangaroo. Oh, good point. Its wrists were fused together, and it had hands like hooves, so it could probably walk on those. The forelimbs were shorter proportionally to Iguanodon bernisartensis. The forelimbs of Mantellosaurus are about half the length of its hind limbs. The arm bone, the humerus, had a ridge known as the delto-pectoral crest, which probably means it had powerful deltoid and pectoral muscles. I think most dinosaurs have that, but it must have been bigger on Mantellosaurus. Yeah, so Mantellosaurus is estimated to be about 23 feet or 7 meters long. It weighed about 1,650 pounds or 750 kilograms. And it had a low skull. It had an hourglass-shaped head. (laughs) At least it looks like that when you're looking at it from above. I've never thought of that before with an iguanodon, but they do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So Mantellosaurus was an herbivore. It had teeth up to one and a half inches or 40 millimeters tall and had dental batteries and a large beak. And it had tall neural spines with ossified tendons, which maybe it had a ridge along its back. Mantellosaurus had large thumb claws or spikes that was possibly used for defense, but its arms were pretty short. So maybe it used it to fight with other Mantellosaurus or to dig out roots or tear bark off trees or open up some food. There were trackways found in the same area as the holotype of Mantellosaurus, and that may show that they traveled in groups because the trackways showed juveniles and adults. They're traveling in herds. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The type and only species is Mantellosaurus atherfieldensis. It used to be known as Iguanodon atherfieldensis. The genus name means Mantell's lizard, and it's in honor of Gideon Mantell who discovered Iguanodon. So Gideon Mantell had a sad story, and we've talked a little bit about his sad story on our show. But he basically became obsessed with dinosaurs and stopped his medical practice. He, he was a doctor. And he wrote books that didn't really sell, and though he sold fossils to the British Museum, he couldn't make a living as a paleontologist. So his wife and kids eventually left him, and that explains why he was bitter towards his wife at the end. Anyway, he died very bitter, and also with a spinal injury on November 10th, 1852. But he was very important to early dinosaur research. Yes. And the species name of Mantellosaurus is in honor of Atherfield, which is the village on the Isle of Wight where the holotype was found. So the holotype, taking a page from Garrett, NHMUKR5764, was found in 1914 by amateur paleontologist Reginald Walter Hooley in southern England and then reported in 1917. And Hooley posthumously named it Iguanodon atherfieldensis in 1925. Mantellosaurus, then, was named by Gregory Paul in 2007. When it got pulled out of Iguanodon and put in its own genus. Mm -hmm. And a lot of complete and nearly complete skeletons have been found. So, Iguanodon has been described as a wastebasket taxon. Darren Nation, and David Martell said in 2008 it was, quote, taxonomic dumping grounds. I saw it's also been called a taxonomic grab bag. A lot like the old megalosauroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't really like using iguanodon or iguana, whatever, <laughs> add your suffix because it is pretty controversial. Mantellosaurus has been found in many parts of Europe, so it's gone by many names. There's the maidstone specimen, which we talked about in episode 87 when we covered iguanodon. 
That was found in a quarry in Maidstone, Kent in 1834. Part of it was blown apart by gunpowder and then scattered, but a lot of it was on this large slab of Kentish rag sandstone. So William Harding Benstead owned the quarry and excavated the fossils and then wrote to Gideon Mantell. And Mantell said that it was an iguanodon based on the teeth. He offered to pay 10 pounds for it. Benstead asked for 25. So it took a few months, but then Mantell and his friends got the money and bought what they called the Mantell piece, uh, like mantelpiece. Oh, that's fantastic. Which eventually became the dinosaur on Maidstone's coat of arms. And Mantell based his iguanodon restoration on the Maidstone specimen, but he did make some mistakes, like he thought there was a horn on the snout. But, you know, that's the thumb claw. And it was very much a quadrupedal, typical lizard sort of shape at Mm -hmm. that point. Yeah. But, you know, they had to find more specimens to figure that out. So the Maidstone specimen was considered to be Iguanodon anglicus, and it's now at the Natural History Museum in London. And it turns out it came from a type locality that was much higher than where the original iguanodon teeth had come from. So it probably can't be iguanodon anglicus. In 1888, Richard Lidecker said that the specimen was the lectotype of iguanodon mantelli, but iguanodon mantelli was named two years before the maidstone specimen was found. So that wasn't accepted. Yeah, that... The specimen that's on display at the Natural History Museum in London is awesome. You can walk all the way around it because it's in a glass case and it's near where Dippy used to be Mm -hmm. (laughs) off to the side, right in that front entry hall. It's definitely worth taking a look at if you can. Yes. I'll get into the history of the Mantellosaurus at the museum in a little bit. Nice. So the Maidstone specimen is now classified as possibly Mantellosaurus atherfieldensis, and it's CF, which means very uncertain. There's also Dolodon bampingi found in Belgium, and that's considered to be a junior synonym of Mantellosaurus atherfieldensis. Originally, this specimen was thought to be Iguanodon mantelli. It was named in 1881 by George Albert, and then it was thought to be Iguanodon atherfieldensis in 1986 by David Bruce Norman. And then it was named this new genus, Dolodon by Gregory Paul in 2008, based on it being more quadrupedal compared to Mantellosaurus, which had the shorter forelimbs proportionally and a larger pelvis, and therefore was more likely to be bipedal or more bipedal. And then in 2010, Kenneth Carpenter and Yusuke Ishida synonymized Dolodon with Iguanodon sealai, based on a specimen from the Wessex Formation in England. And then in 2012, Andrew McDonald and David Norman said that Dolodon was Mantellosaurus. So kind of a whirlwind there. Yeah. Mantellosaurus specimens have also been found in Sauerland, Germany. They were disarticulated. And in Spain, they found an articulated hind limb. They also found three specimens from the Arcias de Morea formation and a specimen from the Rubielos de Mora locality. The fossils found in Germany were thought to be Vectosaurus valdensis. And then in 1990, David Norman found them to be juvenile iguanodon atherfieldensis, which of course now is Mantellosaurus. In some of the places where Mantellosaurus was found, there was probably a flash flood or mudslides, such as in Germany where it was found. There were also fossils found in Haute-Marne, France, that were originally called Heterosaurus neocomiensis, named by Jacques Cornell in 1850 and thought to be different because its teeth were different from Iguanodon, Hylaeosaurus, and Megalosaurus, you know, the original three dinosaurs. And the full name Heterosaurus neocomiensis means different lizard from the neocomian. 
It's pretty funny. Different lizard heterosaurus. <laughs> it's different than the other things we found. It's like, yes, yes. that's why you're naming a genus. <laughs> what else? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I guess that's before we knew how diverse dinosaurs were. <laughs> yeah. So in 1968, this dinosaur was redescribed and stored with iguanodon material. And then in 1992, Valerie Martin and Eric Buffetot found it to closely resemble iguanodon atherfieldensis, now Mentelosaurus. So as Garrett mentioned, Mentelosaurus is on display in a glass case in Hintz Hall at the Natural History Museum in London, and it's the holotype. It's known by the nickname Mantelli. And it's been in the hall since 2017, and before that, it was hung from the ceiling in the dinosaurs gallery, where they have, it's just jam-packed with dinosaurs. They got quite a few things hanging from the ceiling in there. I didn't realize any holotypes were up there. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't think of anywhere else where they have terrestrial dinosaurs hanging from ceilings, <laughs> especially <laughs> holotypes. Jeez. <laughs> so originally, the Natural History Museum in London had Mantellosaurus standing like a kangaroo with its tail dragging, and then it was shown as semi-quadrupedal with its tail lifted to help show movement. The skeleton was removed temporarily in 2019. Pretty sure we talked about this. This was to scan all the bones and study them and make the data available to scientists around the world. And they did all of those scans in three days. They waited for the museum to close one evening, and then they just took the bones from the mount. And the team used laser and handheld scanners to build these high-resolution digital models of the fossils. Some of the bones were left in the mount when they were doing this because they're attached to it, like in the pelvic area. So they used a handheld scanner. Yeah, I think sometimes they drill through the bones to mount, or they used to do that to mount them. And then anytime you take them out, it's a little risky that something might break. So yeah, better off probably just scanning it as it is mm -hmm. and ignoring the mount part in your scan. And that skeleton, the Mantellosaurus holotype, is nearly 86% real bones. Wow. And then cast make up the rest. So they have, for example, the left arm, but not the right arm. But if you have the left arm, you can figure out what the right arm looks yeah, like. Yeah, that's great. Because, yeah, if it's just the mirror images you're missing, you basically have 100% of the bones. You know what it's all like. Mm -hmm. And they do have the real skull, but that's not on display. The real skull is stored in the basement. Susanna Maidment, who was in charge of the scanning, said that they found some differences between past descriptions of Mantellosaurus and what they saw with their scans. So there will be a redescription of the holotype at some point. Cool. And our fun fact of the day is almost entirely courtesy of a listener from Beijing who is a Chinese native and shared this with us, as well as that correction I had earlier in the episode. But it turns out there are a lot of different translations in Chinese from some common dinosaurs in English, which we always just know by the same name. But since they have to change the name anyway to pronounce it in Chinese, sometimes it gets translated in different ways. So the coolest one is Velociraptor. It's sometimes translated as Shunmunglong, which is the name <laughs> of that new Compsonathid that we mentioned last week. So that's going to confuse a lot of Chinese people because mm -hmm. now this Shunmunglong refers to a Compsonathid, whereas they had been using that name to literally mean Velociraptor. Mm -hmm. It makes sense because Shunmunglong translates to swift dragon, which is obviously very similar to Velociraptor, which is swift thief. It's just basically replacing the raptor with long, and then the rest of it's the same. Shunmunglong is also the name that they picked for the Jurassic Park translation, the Chinese translation of the movies. Oh. So when they're speaking in Chinese, they don't say Velociraptor, they say Shunmunglong. So yes, there are a lot of people that are going to be confused by this well, new hopefully dinosaur. Hopefully Shunmunglong doesn't appear in any Jurassic World media. 
I think it will because I don't think they're going to change the name of Velociraptor. Oh, I meant the new one that was described this year. Oh, yeah. Last year. Yeah, if they have Shunmong Long and Shunmon Long and mm-hmm. one of them's the Compsonathan yep. and the other one's they the Velociraptor. totally different, yeah. That would be kind of funny, actually. But it does open up a good opportunity for pedantic kids describing that Shunmong Long actually hmm. is the small Compsonathan and not Velociraptor. That's got this other name. <laughs> but yeah, it, I think it really adds to the confusion about Velociraptor in Jurassic Park because not only is the quote-unquote Velociraptor in Jurassic Park much smaller and feathered. Now in Chinese, it's not even the name for a dromaeosaur. It's the name for a compsonathid. So, yikes. The other fun one is Tyrannosaurus. So I mentioned in an earlier fun fact that Tyrannosaurus is usually translated as Baolong, and Bao means sudden and violent or cruel, savage, fierce, or short-tempered, and then you add long for dragon, so it's sort of like this ferocious dragon. But it turns out Bao is a shortened version of Bao Jun, and Bao Jun means tyrant. So it still is Tyrant King. Exactly. But, well, I mean, I guess it was... Tyrant Dragon. Yes. Or Tyrant Dinosaur, if you want to just use long as dinosaur, because I think that's reasonable as well. The full T-Rex name is Bao Long Jun Wang, Tyrant Dragon King. Hmm. Then our listener pointed out that maybe the June is omitted, you know, it's just Baolong because there's already the June in the species name. So they didn't want to have Tyrant in one part. And then the King part also needs that same character in it. So it'd be kind of redundant. But more interestingly to me is that there's a common version of T-Rex, sort of like how we say T-Rex and sometimes it gets hyphenated and stuff like that, except a little bit more of a difference (laughs) between the scientific because T-Rex is still technically the scientific name. Outside of scientific circles, sometimes they call it Bawong Long, and that also translates to Tyrant King Dragon. Hmm. It's just sort of a different orientation of it and then like synonyms in it. So it's something that we don't really see in English where dinosaurs have different names, but I can see how in other languages when the dinosaur name has to get translated, especially when it's to a language that doesn't have the same alphabet as ours, you can end up with multiple different versions of dinosaur names. It's pretty interesting. It is. I kind of wonder if they ended up with Ba Wang Long because Wang for king is a really easy word for kids to learn. And it's a really common word that you see all over the place. It shows up in fairy tales. I think it's a really common last name too. Mm-hmm. So... It makes sense that if you're going to have a tyrant king dragon, it would have that character in it and wouldn't have the more obscure bow as a shortened version of bow June for tyrant and all that stuff. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community, patreon.com slash I Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.